forever. Dog. Welcome to Public Intellectual. I'm your host, Jessica Crispin. Public Intellectual is made possible by its supporters on Patreon. So go to patreon.com slash public intellectual. And for a small monthly donation, you'll get access to bonus episodes, exclusive writings, a tote bag, the usual things. That's patreon.com slash public intellectual. So on Twitter, there is a recurring feature where somebody would say, post your most unpopular opinion about X, about film, about literature, whatever. And quickly this degenerates into a conversation about how difficult art is bad. Ulysses is bad because it's written by a straight white man. Kubrick films are bad because they're directed by a straight white man, the usual. But also that something that is not easily digestible or immediately understandable is somehow offensive to the viewer. And it's a recurring idea that I see on social media more and more. Some of this is coming from women, and I understand it in the way of men pressing on women these ideas that you know, infinite justice, brilliant, and so on. And there's a understandable desire to push back and say, no, my own opinion on this is valid as well. But this turns into wholesale rejection. I come from the Midwest, which has a very sort of skeptical and hostility, I guess, to art in general, art of any kind. My friend Jennifer Porto also came from the Midwest. And now here we are living in Berlin, me some of the time, her all the time. She is, has devoted her life to opera and music, and I've de- devoted my life to literature. So the following is a conversation about American hostility to art, how this becomes systemic due to lack of education and understanding of art and what it does especially with art being dominated by the market in America more than probably anywhere else. And then what it means to separate yourself from that environment and live a life devoted to art. Jennifer Porto, welcome back Thank to you. Public Intellectual. Jessica Crispin. I want to start off by asking for you to tell our audience um, a little bit about your background, about where you come from. Um, we're both from the Midwest, um, which, uh, yeah. So uh, tell me tell me your version of, of the Midwest. So I was born in Des Moines, Iowa, which is the capital of Des Moines. And I am the second of five kids born to my parents. And we, when I was four or five, we moved to a suburb of Des Moines called Johnston. And then I spent the rest of my education through high school in Johnston with my family. Um, I then went to school at Iowa State University. When I was in high school, I had studied Spanish and I really love Spanish and I um, 
absolutely wanted to be a translator at the UN when I was younger. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in service to that, when I was 16, I arranged a, like an exchange through my mom's work at the time to go to Spain for a month to live with a family and sort of like have an immersion experience with the Spanish language. Mm -hmm. And while I was there, I met this guy, his name was Gualberto. Um, Weirdly, he had an American mom and and a Spanish dad and his mom lived in Madison, Wisconsin, like three blocks from my grandma. Uh, And I fell madly in love with him. And I, when I think about it, I like to, I like to think, or I like to imagine that this experience of falling in love when I was 16 did something to my voice because I came back and although I had always sung in choir, I was no good. Mm. And then I came back and suddenly had a voice. Um, And I started taking voice lessons with a local university professor and was told that I should probably study music. And I don't know why I said, okay, but I did. And then I couldn't afford that university. Mm. Um, And I ended up going to Iowa State University of Science and Technology, which provided me with an incredible fish in a small pond experience that allowed me or afforded me the opportunity to to just do a whole lot of stuff that I wouldn't have otherwise been able to do. Mm -hmm. And then following that time, following the four four years there, I went to graduate school at the Cleveland Institute of Music and got a master's of music there. And then really didn't know what I was, what I was supposed to do. Mm -hmm. So then I I got another degree from there called professional studies. Um, And in addition to that degree, I got lots and lots of debt that I took out in the form of subsidized loans from the U.S. government. Um, And that is how I got my master's degree. And then I had fallen in love with a a conducting student, and I followed him to England for a while. (laughs) It didn't work out. (laughs) Um, And then I went back to Cleveland, and um, I really wanted to get back to... London. And I thought, I need to find, I don't have any money and I'm in a lot of debt. So I need to find a way to pay for me to get back there somehow. And I was like, oh, I know. I'm going to apply for a Fulbright to England because they'll pay you. Mm-hmm. And then you just get to be there and you get to study and do whatever. And I and I looked and um, they give out six Fulbrights in, in London every year or in England every year. And I thought, nah, there's no way that I'm going to get that. Ooh, but Germany, that looks kind of good. And because I had studied music, because I'd studied voice, there was a, a good reason for me to go to Germany. There are so many opera houses here. Mm-hmm. You know, classical music is in the, it's just so entrenched in the culture here. Um, and so I got a Fulbright to come here. And... I never went back home. I mean, I've visited, but I've lived here for almost 14 years. And now your family is dead to you. I don't know that I could say that they're (laughs) dead to me. (laughs) Hi, family. You're not dead to me. (laughs) How big is Des Moines? I don't actually know, like population-wise. I actually don't know either. At some point, it's a bit like when I go back to the States and I buy like a gallon of milk. I'm shocked at how expensive it is because in my mind, milk costs like, I don't know, a buck 95, no, 99 cents. And gas is around a year, a, a dollar. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I feel like Des Moines has 300,000 inhabitants, but that could be a number from the late 90s. Okay, yeah, sure. Hmm. But it's, I, 
it's interesting because Des Moines is a, is, is a small town. Mm-hmm. In you know when when you think about America, Des Moines is a small town, but there are towns in Germany that people have heard of back in America that are that size or smaller. I mean, yeah. a city like Frankfurt am Main has okay, it's a huge financial center, but that's got around six hundred thousand inhabitants. Yeah. That's not a big city. Yeah. So how was what was your exposure when you were younger to the art world in Des Moines? So we always sang in choir because we being, you know, my brothers and sisters and I, we played in the band. We would go, there was the the art center in Des Moines. We would go, I think it was a free museum. I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's a free museum. We would go and spend time there. Um, that's, I think that's about it. We listened to to stuff at home. But weirdly, I had already applied for and gotten into college to be an opera singer before I had seen my first opera, which I saw the summer before I went to school. My sister um, had called into a radio station and had won tickets. What was the show? What was Uh, the opera? It was Don Giovanni at the Des Moines Metropolitan Opera. What a one to start with. It was amazing. It's a... It, there was, you know, it's a small stage, but they had, I don't even know what the technical term for it is. They had like a, in German, it's called a Laufsteg. They had like a, a, a platform that you could walk on into the audience. So the orchestra mm-hmm. was between the audience. No, but between the orchestra was sort of in the middle of that. And the singers were like right there above <laughs> me sweating. And it was incredible. Hmm. Um, yeah. That's interesting. My my first opera, by the way, was here in Berlin. It was for the love of three oranges. Uh, which house? Uh, the commotion. <gasps> it was it was wonderful. Yeah. It was magic. And then uh, I was transformed by the experience. And I was 32, 32 years old. Yeah. My first opera. Um, how old were you when you saw your first opera? I think I must have been. I was uh, probably yeah eighteen. Hmm. Yeah. Um. And your family, so I mean, they listen to music at home. And when you say the choir, was that religious? Was it? Um... So we belonged to the Catholic Church for a really, really long time, and we would always sing. None of us belonged, like none of us sang in the church choir, but we would go to church. We would sing along with the hymns. We listened to music all the time at home. And when I went to study opera, I remember my relatives saying, "Oh, it must be because." your paternal grandfather used to listen to the Metropolitan Opera broadcasts on Saturday afternoons. And and I thought, oh, okay. I didn't know what those were. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was, but I wouldn't, I mean, when you look at a lot of classical musicians, they, they come from musical families. And my family was not an amusical family. We did lots of music, but we weren't, you know, like a, a family of musicians by any stretch. Yeah. See, this is why I'm sort of interested in it because it's kind of similar from my perspective of I just didn't come from uh, a family that cared at all about what I ended up sort of devoting my life to. Um, So I am sort of interested, you know, whenever I hear about, oh, and then my family took me to uh, Shakespeare in the park and then we we saw the symphony and the I'm like, I'm always so deadly envious of those experiences because 
God, would somebody fucking take me to the symphony as a six-year-old and just tell me what the fuck was happening? Like, anyway, I'm very, yeah. I am always so wildly jealous of those people when you, when, you know, when they talk about like growing up and you would go see, you know, and sort of every summer we would just go and spend time. Shakespeare, we would exactly like Shakespeare in the park or yeah, you know, when I was a kid, my dad was the conductor and I would just go and hang out in rehearsals and I was always and I'm still so jealous of that being part and parcel of your childhood. Yeah, to just have it be sort of normalized um, and to figure out what your taste is and what your experience of it is in a sort of natural way of, um, you know, coming to it as a child and not uh, sort of over intellectualizing it. Um, and I, I think that one of the reasons that I'm so envious of it is it's not like those resources in the Midwest don't exist. Um, I lived in Kansas city for a year and Kansas city has fucking great, um, access to art. Uh, the museum, which has a wonderful collection, including a sergeant that I'm obsessed with. And I used to go to, uh, like once a week to go sit in front of, um, is, is completely free. The opera house actually does sort of, uh, both, uh, you know, the stuff that you would expect it to like Don Giovanni, but it also does contemporary work. Um, and so it's this actually sort of vibrant, seen, but it gets sort of left out of the cultural conversation of America. And also I feel like, um, at least with my family, uh, there's the, a sort of Midwestern hostility sometimes to art or they, a sort of, um, feeling of inadequacy or something like, um, this, if I, there was definitely a sense in my family that sort of cultural, the cultural world world would look down upon them as being uh, unsophisticated, uh, you know, uh, uneducated in in these sorts of um, in these specific ways. Did you have, feel any of that? So, to their credit, my immediate family has always been wildly supportive of what I do. My parents have always been, um, and I I marvel at it the way that they created and sort of shepherded five people to be individuals and to be really, really independent, to make our own choices and then to live with the consequences of those choices. And when I said, this is what I want to do, there was no, they were like, okay, that's what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. Go out and be successful and, and, and go for it. And we're, we're rooting for you. And that, that was exciting in my, you know, in my extended family, there were some members who, you know, when I said I was going to go to school, for for singing or especially when I was going to go to graduate school to study vocal performance they were like but how are you going to earn money mm-hmm. what is your job going to be and it was there were some who I thought and they were you know also the classical music lovers of the family the ones that were the most judgmental of that or the ones that seemed to somehow be uh, to take it as an affront in a way and I never I never understood that about the culture I mean, the culture in, in America as general in general, I think about it here, you know, my um, when I talk to people on, you know, in the most random of situations about what it is that I do, there's never a hostility from a conversation because I've sung at this or that opera house. It's always, oh, that's fantastic. Oh, my gosh. Have you seen this show at this theater? Mm-hmm. It's just a part of the dialogue here in a way that it that it wasn't when I was growing up. Did you ever did you ever meet Hera Ingalls? Um, 
Um, yes, yes. You know who I'm talking about. I do immediately. Oh, yeah. I yeah. Uh, so I met Hair Ingalls, who is a a fixture on the on the art scene yeah. here. He and his wife, and this is what he told me when the night that I met him, because uh, he took me because uh, I was like a friend of a friend of a friend, and he just like generously invited me. Oh, do you want to go see this show? We have an extra ticket. Um, and it turned out to be uh, Stravinsky's Petrushka, which I lost my mind at that show. And it was the first time I'd experienced that piece. I thought I was going to like be set on fire or vomit or burst into tears or laughter. Like I wasn't sure at any moment what was going on with me anyway. Um, but, and he told me, you know, he was buying me a beer after and he told me that he and his wife like go out every night, every night to go see something. And I was just like, this is who I want to be when I'm, when I'm 70 or however old he is. I'm sorry if I just sort of made him older than he actually is, but they consume culture in a way that I find uh, exhausting. They're just always out. They're always out at the theater, but it's like in a, they don't take it necessarily too seriously either. In this, like, they're not snobby about it. They're very approachable. They'll tell you, you know, they'll talk very elegantly. Uh, and, but in an approachable way about what we just saw. Um, and then he told me a story about how he lived next to um, a brewery when he was a kid and they would steal the uh, oats that had been used for the beer and feed them to the cows at, to get the cows drunk. I love him so much. And I only saw him that one time, <laughs> but he's made such a mark on my life. You have no idea. Yeah. He's a lovely, but that's like, there's a, there's a type of that. There's like this consumer of culture that is mm-hmm. not, um, it's not showy. It's there. It's not performative. It's just instead of watching TV at home at night or instead of playing a game, they they just spend their nights at the theater. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's who I want to be when I'm or I, who I wish I were could be now, actually, let's be honest. The thing I like about it a lot is that they have um, I mean, prices for tickets here are a lot lower than they are in America, but they also have fantastic subscription options for audience members and you can really i mean you have to commit to i commit you have to pay for maybe 10 or 12 shows but then each ticket for a good seat sometimes costs i think as little as eight euros Mm -hmm. it's not it's not wildly expensive yeah i remember one time my in-laws got us tickets to see an opera in san francisco and i think each ticket and these were not good tickets we it was a partial it was partial viewing only it was la traviata um, I, I think over a hundred dollars per ticket, which sure. is, yeah. of course I'm, I'm not going to pay $150 yeah. for a ticket to go see, to go see half of the stage for Traviata. Not a chance. Yeah. 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 Plus, um, not to just be like Berlin is better, but Berlin is better. But also like when you, you know, every time I go to the Komosha here, it's, uh, a, an, an inventive interpretation of what's going on. Whereas in the States, if you go see like a Wagner or whatever, it's like, it's so stodgy. It's so expected. It's, it's the exact same thing that they've done for 50 years. There's so little imagination going on in it. Um, and I know that's not true for everything for like sort of, but the definitely the places that you're paying $300 for, um, there's just, this uh, deadness to to the culture. I think there is some exciting stuff happening in theaters. Um, 
a friend of mine that I know, she just did this incredible, I, I mean, just did it, but it may have been last season or the season before. She did a fantastic world premiere of an opera that was inventive and ridiculous. And it was at a, it was at a great house. But I think a lot of it has to do sort of, I mean, I feel like all we're going to talk about today is money somehow. Yeah. But it has to do really with how, um, how the cultural institutions are financed. Opera costs a lot of money because you have singers, you have chorus, you have orchestra, you have people that make the costumes, people that design the costumes, people that move the stuff around on the stage, people that make the stuff around the stage, the people who take the tickets, the people who do all the lighting in the house. Like you have a lot of people that need to get paid Mm -hmm. each night. And in Germany, it is heavily, heavily, heavily subsidized. And that's great. Yeah. It's interesting because you'll hear audiences here sometimes talk about, oh, can we please just get a normal production of Don Giovanni? Like, does it have to be this crazy thing on the moon? Or I don't understand. So it's interesting yeah. to like the grass is greener idea happens over here as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm sure. But uh, I saw a bunch of um, operas at the Coma show that they turned into lesbian, all woman cast for no reason. Sure. Uh, like a lady with a cod piece, just humping other ladies on the stage. It was, it was wonderful. Makes really sense good. to me. Yeah. yeah. It cost me 20 euro. Anyway, um, could you have a similar kind of life culturally in the States, specifically in the Midwest that you have in Berlin? Absolutely not. It's not. I feel like in... So I I grew up in Des Moines and I went to college for four years in Ames, Iowa. And I remember I was there when they did a census and it was super, super, super important that all of the students at the university fill out the census Mm -hmm. because the university population was going to bump the city up by so many tens of thousands that it would become a metropolis. And you get... Which I think is... I know that sounds crazy, but I feel like metropolis is 50,000 people. Um, and that meant that they would get federal funding uh, or state funding. So it was super important that that every student fill this out. But if you, okay, if you have a student population of twenty two thousand total, you have just over thirty thousand people, or nearly yeah, um, who are people that live there, and that's not very many people. Mm-hmm. And there were some incredible actors in my past who were were really and and still to this day push really, really, really hard to make opportunities for their students or to make opportunities for their fellow citizens. But it's not, it's not a, you know, every, like the angles, you can't go to the theater every night of the week, but here that's, that's one theater. Mm -hmm. And, and there some really amazing, some really amazing things happened, but they happened on occurrences that were few and far between. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I have really, I have incredibly vivid memories of performances that I participated in or performances that I got to watch. I think the very first time, you know, I grew up in Des Moines, but I went to school 45 minutes away in Ames and I had seen the Des Moines Symphony Orchestra and they do, back then, I don't know what their concert season is like now, but they would do, I think, a concert every five or six weeks or maybe once a month. Mm-hmm. And I remember I got to see my first year of school. I wasn't in that choir, but my university choir was invited to join the Des Moines Symphony Orchestra for a performance of Mahler's Second Symphony, uh, which is known as the Resurrection Symphony. And it is sublime music and makes you it's incredible. And I remember being a freshman in college. And and I still remember that these many years later, this this life-changing moment. Mm. And that sticks out. Yeah. Um, later that year, 
I got to sing in the chorus for the Mozart Requiem. Something like the Hungarian Radio Symphony Orchestra was going on a tour of the U.S. and they came to Ames and um, at the concert hall there, they did the Mozart Requiem and we got to sing in the chorus. And that was an, an amazing experience. Yeah. But when I think about the culture that I have consumed in Berlin in the last two weeks alone, I have more examples than maybe an entire year in Iowa or maybe even in in, in four years in Ames. Mm -hmm. So formally going through a system where you're sort of formally educated into music, did that help you appreciate... I guess what I'm asking is, um, so I think there's this sort of assumption that uh, an immediate response to music or art or something like that is the is all you need. Like the, it, can, it can be decontextualized from uh, the time in which it was conceived, who created it, all the you know what it means, the historical moment, etc. You know, it's just about the sort of music as it's as you're sort of listening to it um whereas i don't think that that's true so i'm wondering how being going through this sort of formal education uh in music deepened your appreciation of music i would spend hours in the music library and hours in the regular library just sort of devouring everything i could Mm -hmm. Um, when I was between my sophomore and junior year, I was able to go on a two-week trip to Florence um, to to look at to basically do sort of um, Renaissance art history, and that was incredible to have. It's not the same. It's just not the same when you look at images in a book and then you look at that piece of art on the wall mm-hmm. and to have a recording of, of, of anything is not the same as getting to experience it live. Mm-hmm. I am such a huge lover and a uh, proponent of live theater because it is like, there is this collective experience that we are all having together. And that is so important. And that is really one of the most important things about live theater or art of any kind that here we are, different people from 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 different paths in life and we are converging here to enjoy this piece mm-hmm. and it was nice to be able to to because i there wasn't a whole lot to do <laughs> otherwise to spend hours and hours and hours consuming music and consuming art in the library by myself mm-hmm. Because, I mean, obviously, arts education is increasingly rare in the United States. Yeah. Um, We, in the school system that I went to uh, in high school, because I didn't have a university, um, there was no no visual arts. There was um, music, but there was like the band, there was the band, uh, and it was just... um, some trumpets and and like I played the clarinet because it was I was I was picked last to choose an instrument and that was all that was left <laughs> the clarinet um but uh there wasn't any sort of um uh, music theory that didn't explain anything that was happening um and 
I just, that's why the arts are so sort of morbid in the States, I think, because it's, um, you, if there's not that sort of structure in which to understand what you're hearing, what you're seeing, um, I don't know how you make sense of it or appreciate it. Like, of course, it just seems like they're making fun of you half of the time, right? This is a thing that's kind of difficult is that you have to, in order to be able to to follow along or understand, you have to have a little bit of of, of exposure to it. And it can't just be, this is an orchestra. Um, you know, the the all of the, the larger cultural institutions here regularly hold events for children in daycare and in... Um, in primary school and even in secondary school where they go in and they talk about, this is the orchestra. They play Peter and the wolf for the the little kids in daycare. Mm-hmm. And they learn about the, they learn about the clarinet. They learn about the trumpet. I played oboe for six years. They learn about hey. the, oh, I know you don't even, I mean, we didn't even ooh. have an oboe. <laughs> That's actually probably for the best. Um, a sixth grader playing oboe as my entire family can attest is not, <laughs> it's just not pleasant. <laughs> You know, I did get when I was in band in 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 middle school, I got lessons by myself because I was the only oboe player. But, you know, I think in fifth grade when we started with band, I think there were 20 flute players and I was one of the flute players. And then they said, hey, can you just play oboe for us here? Mm-hmm. I don't and like 30 clarinet players. Don't take that wrong. But that's kind of like, oh, God, we need another. Yeah. Give her clarinet. That's kind of what it's kind of what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was first chair without underst- without being able to uh, read music. So Which means that, I don't know what that tells you about Lincoln High School, a uh, <laughs> sixth grade band. But uh, well, maybe chair. maybe your ears really good. And that means also you like to get I was always jealous because in an orchestra, the oboe gives the tuning pitch. Mm-hmm. And in a band in the American tradition, the first clarinet gets to give the tuning pitch. And I was always <laughs> super jealous that I didn't get to give the tuning pitch. Oh, but my school didn't have an orchestra. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think it starts there. And then the other main problem then becomes that arts are not publicly funded in the States, which means that they are regulated essentially by um, the market and uh, dependent on essentially entirely evil corporations in order to fund things like um, the Met and the Whitney and so on. Um, and they are actually sort of subsidized by the government here because people have to pay taxes in, in Germany for the most part. I mean, for the most part. Do you not do you not pay taxes? I mean, we pay a lot in taxes here. I still have to, uh, no, because I'm under the uh, mm. half of the year. So my taxes okay. go to the United States. Unfortunately. Well, alas. That's, that's too bad. We yeah. pay lots in taxes here. Yeah. <laughs> but I like it. Um, it. It's difficult. It is. And this is always the, this is always the issue when you think about arts education in the States. There, it is very difficult to quantify what learning about Schubert's Winterreise has to do with money mm-hmm. it because you you can't or like being able to talk about Mark Rothko being able to talk about anything in art history mm-hmm. has it's really hard to be able to say and that's why we have so and so much money right it it just can't it but I know that it makes um well-rounded individuals who can then talk about a lot of other things mm-hmm. So there was, um, well, I guess it's still ongoing, an ongoing protest uh, at the Whitney um, because 
one of their uh, a person on the board uh, it has investment ties to um, a company that manufactures the tear gas that the United, that the United States government used on the border against the migrants. Um, and so there's this ongoing protest to get this person kicked off the board, even though uh, pretty much everybody on the board there is involved in the pharmaceutical industry or defense uh, or of some kind, you know, just like everybody that has money is evil and we need to understand this. Um, uh, and so I just wonder, like looking at these sorts of controversies from here, um, like what do you think the difference is in experience of because you are an American living in Germany, so you've had sort of both experiences of um, your experience of going to an art museum in, in America that's sort of dominated by money, by wealth, by patrons versus a sort of uh, government subsidized organization. Okay, so when I was growing up in Des Moines, I forget the name of the artist, but the De, the the art the Des Moines Art Museum had purchased um, a piece of modern art, and it was three. Um, I think they were wet, dry vax in three different colors, and they were stacked in plexiglass. Mm -hmm. And it was this horrible controversy that was everywhere. Like, why are they wasting money on this? Like, of all the things that they're doing, what is you know what is what is this about? That's ridiculous. And um, I remember thinking, yeah, why are they why are they wasting that money? That's not art. And then you go and see it and you can and you're like, yeah, that's just three wet dry vacs <laughs> in, in plexiglass and I can't even get close to it. But it I feel like when you're not when you don't have access to this or when you're not taught that it is just a that it's just a normal thing to go to the museum or that it's, if it's a special thing to go to the museum, then you, you never really have an opportunity to contextualize what it is that you're seeing. Mm -hmm. You don't really know how to critically look at or listen to the, the art with, with which you are being confronted. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's important to be able to do that. Yeah. If it's, you know, I do, I do, um, things with students here in Berlin, American students in Berlin, and I call myself the opera whisperer. And I go and I talk to U.S. students about the opera performance or the theater performance that they are about to experience. Mm -hmm. And I always talk a little bit about the piece, about the general plot summary, especially if they're going to a theater piece that's only in German. Mm -hmm. And the question that they have most often is, okay, what if I'm bored? Yeah. Um, where do I clap? And um, what do I wear? <laughs> and it shouldn't. And I think, and that, that's a, like, that's always a funny question. Like, I don't know, but I mean, whatever you're wearing is fine. Yeah. But in, for so many people in the States, it's such, it's such a rare special opportunity to go to the theater that you have to make a thing out of it. Yeah. It costs over a hundred bucks, like every single time. Yeah. Yeah. And here, you know, they always have, um, and I know that a lot of institutions in the States also have um, reduced price tickets for students. But when, you know, if you go to the Berlin Phil when you're four as a part of your daycare and then you you get a cheap ticket up until the age that you're 27 and your subscription, you know, when you're in your 30s is really inexpensive. It just, well, you, oh, you didn't have time to go home and change, but it doesn't matter. You're just going to the show tonight. Yeah. 
and you experience art and you experience the world around you in a different way. Yeah. I do remember going to see a Shostakovich uh, opera at the Komosha and there was like a group, like an entire like swarm of teenage girls in jeggings, like matching jeggings. Yeah. Uh, It was pretty, it was pretty good. Yeah. Um, Wow. Just wear jeggings. Was it? Which Shostakovich? Do you remember? Was it Lady Macbeth? Of no, it wasn't. No, okay. No, it was like some sort of um, tertiary Shostakovich, but it was. It but was also, thrilling. bless them that they're doing tertiary Shostakovich operas. Yeah, right? no, like random, weird, like deep cut Shostakovich. Yeah. So I had this recent experience of um, so the Whitney had put on a uh, a David Wanarowitz show that I, in just stubborn stupidity, decided I'm boycotting, which does nothing to help the world <laughs> in any possible way. But you it's like $25, $28 or something to go to a show at the Whitney. Uh, that Whitney is specifically built uh, on the place where, you know, um, David Wanarowitz used to look for Johns when he was, you know, uh, selling his body in order to eat. The Whitney and the rest of the art scene in New York City profited greatly off of all the dying gay artists, uh, and they did very little to uh, help anybody during that time. Um, and so I was just like, I'm not going to go. And I kept reading reviews that were like, he, they're depoliticizing the work, they're decontextualizing it, they just put a bunch of stuff on the wall, um, and they didn't sort of show his most incendiary work. And I was like, I'm not going to that. And then I had this deep regret that I was missing the show of a, of an artist who's meant a great deal to me since I was 16 years old. Um, and then it came to Berlin and I went to the show in Berlin, uh, at the, and now I can't remember where it was. Is it, it's me collector's gallery, right? No, it's the, uh, Cave. Yeah. 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 Um, and, uh, they put it in the sort of like underground area. Mm-hmm. So it was like a tomb with the dim lights. And it was the most beautiful thing I, I'd ever seen. And I just went from room to room, like crying. And they gave it all the space that it deserved. So a lot of the rooms, there was just one or two pieces in the entire room. And it was, it was, um, it was one of the most moving experiences of my life. I was in a daze afterwards. But I think that these kinds of things matter. Like the Whitney with all of its, you know, all of its light, all of its just like, oh, look, this is the art. It might as well be for sale. We might as well be shopping right now. Versus like this sort of solemn attitude and making you be sort of confronted with the feeling of loss of this person who died before he was even 40 years old. Um... And not just of him, but of all of his friends, an entire generation. Um, These things really do matter. So I just finished a run of shows. Um, We did Leonard Bernstein's Trouble in Tahiti. And I'm going to come back to what you were just saying about this. So Trouble in Tahiti is a 42-minute opera. Bernstein was married to a woman, had kids, but was also gay. And he wrote this somewhat autobiographical opera there's the two characters are Sam and Dinah and I played Dinah the 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 wife they have an unseen 8-year-old son and it's semi autobiographical because Bernstein is this unseen 8-year-old child who actually shouldn't like he is referred to in the show but he never appears on stage he has no lines and it is 
a problematic opera, first of all, because it's 42 minutes and 42 minutes is not enough to charge people for. Yeah. Um, it does get incorporated later into a show called A Quiet Place, but that's also a problematic opera. At any rate, um, it's also a problematic piece because there is no crisis. Like, nothing happens. There, No one dies. No one gets um, tortured. No one gets poisoned. No one gets murdered. It's a very... It's just the, the crisis is that it's about a couple that has um, grown apart and they've grown apart. It takes place in the 50s. And part of the reason that they've grown apart is that they live in suburbia. And while you are sold this dream of suburbia, um, it's extremely isolating. And you're like you're out there house after house after house after house. And you have to get in your car and you have to drive somewhere to do any sort of purchasing of anything. I just also finished teaching a class called Performing Gender and Sexuality in the Weimar Republic. And it was... I wanted to take that class so badly. It was no idea. <laughs> it was so much fun. And I, I loved it. And um, one of the days, because I was in Dresden performing, they took the students out on a walk because it's like it's it's such a, a subtle issue, but that is actually kind of really important, I think. It's the issue of zoning and telling the students, okay, you you live right here and then you don't have to go, you don't have to get in your car and drive somewhere. You just kind of, you can walk there. Mm-hmm. You can, I walked, I mean, we walk to places all the time. You yeah. walk from your apartment here, which is a little bit further than I perhaps would walk. Yeah, I think it's three miles, yeah. But we went to the theater on Friday night at the Gorky Theater and then we walked home and it took us maybe five minutes to walk home. And the idea that the things like when you no matter what it is that you want to consume, if it's raspberries and blueberries, if it is um, uh, a, a drink or a meal out or the theater or art, mm-hmm. it's just kind of next door mm-hmm. or just a, just a, a short walk away. Right. And so, not siloed into one tiny neighborhood also. Right. Like no. there's not. Yeah. And it's not I mean, the theater is a destination, but it's not like a destination where you have to go and then park and go somewhere. Mm-hmm. And that's part of. So this this gallery that you're talking about is in a I mean, it's a residential street because kind of almost every street here is residential. Yeah. Like there are certainly business districts, but a lot of those also. But those are weirdly dead zones that people don't enjoy being because there's no life in them. Mm -hmm. And there's, you know, on the on the ground floor of our apartment is a restaurant and across the street from our old apartment is a gallery and a weird pottery guy and a jewelry lady. And then like the ecologically um, responsible paper store. Mm -hmm. And that's a. it's it it you happen upon it because you're going to get milk at the grocery store. Yeah. As opposed to having to travel to be there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I live in Baltimore right now, which is kind of a weird um well, it's weird, but everything is sort of immediately like stuck together and I happen to live kind of near it, but it's such a um it's such a difficult city to get around. Um, there's no public transportation. There's no, it's, and so it just becomes like a fortress, like, yeah. cause it's a, near the, the, both the universities are sort of like stuck to it on either side of like the symphony hall and the lyric opera are both in like within a block of each other. And so it's just, um, this fortress. And so if you don't live within the neighborhood, there's no, 
free way to get there. There's no cheap way to get there. Um, and it, so it just becomes extremely exclusive, very fast. Um, and it's very unfortunate. But think about the Midwest when you were growing up. Like I yeah. have this recurring dream. So we used to, we lived on in Johnston, which is on the north side of Des Moines. And the art museum was sort of in the like the center of town, like downtown Des Moines. But off to one side. And I have this recurring dream where we're driving the the road because we would always take just street roads. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sorry, surface roads to get there. And like the way that you have to get there, it's, it's windy and it's like the top of this bluff and you can't, like it's not a place that you would just, like you are going there. That mm-hmm. is absolutely your destination. And I'm sure there was a bus that went there, but I don't, I mean, we never took it. You just yeah. don't, you don't do that. And I don't, but this is also something like I don't think this is not exclusive to Berlin. Berlin has, I don't know if Berlin has 3 million or 4 million people in it. Um, people who live here complain a lot about the public transportation system. <laughs> it's so good. It makes they me cry when I'm not here. <laughs> they don't even know. Anyway, um, but you know, I think, you know, Des Moines, a population of 300,000 people. And I lived in Leipzig for a number of years and Leipzig at that point had around half a million people. So it's a it's bigger than Des Moines, but it's not, it's not a city. It's not a, mm-hmm. a sprawling city of 4 million. It was exactly the same. Like you have parts of town and you have little galleries or you have a weird museum space or you have, oh yeah, that, that guy that does that, he makes baskets in yeah. the, in the, in the, in the apartment that's on the ground floor. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I had to, we had to drive an hour to get to a movie theater, uh, because uh, it was uh, 50 miles away. So uh, even just doing that, it was a day, right? Like it's a, it's a day if you're driving an hour to see a two hour movie and then coming back. And so it was like this whole big production, which means that didn't happen very often. Like it was this very sort of rarefied thing. Um, And then I would have to see what my parents were saying because my parents did not believe in kids' movies. I mean, that's the only actually maybe the good thing about my childhood. (laughs) Was that you didn't watch kids' movies. We didn't watch kids' movies. We weren't allowed to do kids' books or kids' movies um, because my parents just did not have any interest in it. Uh, And so we watched Dune when I was six. That that explains just a lot about you. It was also my bedtime story at four was Dune. A lot of Dune. Um, Dune is a classic, but I don't like you need to be in the throes of puberty. 2001 when I was eight. I still haven't seen 2001. No one should see 2001, but certainly not an eight year old. But you have to like, but you need to like see 2001 and then be like, what's that amazing music? And they're like, oh, that's that's Strauss. But also then I'm revealing too much of myself right now. But uh, I would do I did an impression of Hal for my third grade class for like a year. And um, it's amazing that nobody murdered me on the playground. And because what does just for hell just did hell? What does that impression I'm sound not like? Doing that. I have not had enough wine. Maybe at the end of the uh, maybe. Why one don't of. you pour again, Jessa? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, no, it was just like this such a a different experience of of everything. And my and my family, my well, not my family, my father um, was big into music. 
Um, but again, like he wasn't interested in children. So there wasn't any explanation of the music or anything. It was just uh, constantly in the background. It really wasn't very much classical. It was mostly like German techno, like Kraftwerk. Um, but it, was, it also, that also has its charms. Um, but yeah, no, there was no, there was no bookstore, no no movie theater, nothing. It was a, it was a, it was, um, it was like, a, like Dune, a bit like a, it was a, a bit like Dune always looking for the spice. Sorry. Uh, but, um, but also like this kind of hostility toward, toward art in any way and a fear of not understanding what they were looking at because they also had not been exposed to it. But this is the thing, like you're never taught about this. And one of the things like when I, when people ask me what I like so much about Germany, I say, you know, Germany has this incredibly rich tradition of beer Mm -hmm. that they have going back more than 500 years. They have very specific laws about what can be called beer. Mm -hmm. And it is like beer is such a part of the, the, the the national identity here. Mm -hmm. But also wine is and also like champagne. But, you know, you call it Zekt. Zekt. Yeah. It, but it's like it's a thing. And and what I what I absolutely love about living here is that you don't have to like just one. You can enjoy all three. And it doesn't say anything about you if you have a beer with dinner. Mm-hmm. And it's like if you think about Zekt as high culture, mm-hmm. like you can also I mean, I love pop music. I like Oh, would give so much to be a pop star. It was never going to happen <laughs> ever. But to be able to be a pop star and popular music, I absolutely adore popular music. Mm-hmm. And people in America are like shocked when I love to talk about like pop music from the 80s. Yeah. yeah. But here they're not mutually exclusive. You you can like you can really be into Wagner, but you can also really be into Kraftwerk. Yeah. There's so little. um uh, not crossover, maybe just conversation between, I think that particularly in America, there's this idea of the high culture as being, um, the boogeyman. You know, I I think about this because when we think about the rich, we still think about, um, their pleasures being, uh, opera. Like they go to, you know, like as it being a sort of status thing, the rich now are just doing cocaine on yachts with Russian, like, I don't, that's not the way, it's not the 19th century anymore. But there's a sort of like boogeyman that uh, culture workers in America are like fighting against that they think like, so there's this whole war that broke out online because Mayor Pete, uh, who's running for president, Mm. listed Ulysses as one of his favorite books. And everyone said, nobody reads Ulysses. That was the joke. Like, nobody reads Ulysses. James Joyce didn't even read Ulysses, hasn't even read Ulysses, which is um, a joke that 18 different people told and got each of them like 1.8 thousand likes uh, each. Anyway, so, uh, but there's this idea, because I think there's a lack of education, a... um, a feeling of hostility from the upper class for the upper classes and imagined hostility from the upper classes um, that high art is making fun of us um, that now it's become this sort of like ingrained. I'm you're not better than me thing with high art. Like I don't need you. I can just watch Lord of the Rings 80,000 times and be sort of culturally satisfied that way. I just 
you know, when when Americans talk about art and even writers, even artists, when they talk about art, it's like, yeah, man, Captain Marvel was a really good movie. I don't know. I don't know what I was saying. I just got so sad all of a sudden. No, I think about, uh, look, the this is a an issue that faces opera companies in the States and classical music inter- institutions in the States and art institutions in the States. Like, okay, how do we get, how do we continue to cultivate an audience? How do we foster and nurture a younger audience because our patrons are all, you know, 60 and older. And the truth is, is that it does take a little bit of work. And frankly, opera isn't going to be for everybody, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't think that it has to be for everybody. Right. I'll be, I'll be really honest. I, with all due respect, respect to the great master, I don't know how many handle operas I have it in me to sit through. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, I just don't enjoy it. <laughs> It's very exciting. And then it's the same thing for three more hours. And yeah. I'm just not into They're it. They're very long. But that's okay. They are so long and it's all ABA, 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 and recitative. And it's just, I can't. Instruments, yeah. It is. And, so, you know, um, it does take a little bit of work. And it actually doesn't take that much. It's just a tiny bit. But when you don't provide people with the opportunity to learn a little bit about it when they're younger, at some point, there's just too much stuff that you have to learn. Yeah. Can I... I do want to give my defense of Ulysses. Um, sure. Because, it, okay, so the thing that I keep hearing, I was at, uh, I was out at the bar uh, with some with some ladies and one of them was an English teacher. And uh, I said something about James Joyce and she almost, she rolled her eyes so hard she almost fell off of her chair and she started ranting out of nowhere about Ulysses and that straight white man bullshit um, and I asked if she'd read Ulysses. She said, no. Anyway, um, there's this idea that Ulysses is, um, you know, self-indulgent and masturbatory and all this kind of stuff. It's so beautiful. And the fact that everybody is sort of treating it as if it's hostile, as if it's, um, toxic, as if it's like a representation of bad white man art, Um, because one time a boyfriend with a beard, like asked you to read infinite jest or something. And now you just can't do an over 600 page, uh, white man novel, um, without understanding the context in which it came from, which was, you know, a man living in a colonized state trying to, uh, you know, recreate a city that was in under threat of not existing anymore because of that uh, colonizer. So wanting to, you know, and it, as he said, create a map. So if it was ever obliterated, they could recreate it from scratch based on just his work. That's a beautiful project. Anyway, so. That was a good defense. Thank you. I think I, you know, and I think about, you know, how I learned to, to read that novel, which was, uh, to sit in the back of a uh, lecture hall in in Cork, Ireland, uh, at 19. And the guy just like barely even talking about the book, but instead just talking about his night at the pub last night, which would somehow come back to the novel uh, or talking about, you know, having a one hour lecture on can you be a hero and still masturbate? Like a, a hero in the classical sense, did Achilles jerk off? Um, yes, it's a, yeah, of course (laughs) he was having super hot sex anyway. Um, yeah, no. So, uh, 
I, I think the way that we are presented with these things matters. Um, and the fact that it's sort of presented in this, um, either a very sort of dry formalized, um, experience against our will or sort of presented as the enemy. I think that that, I think it absolutely matters. And I think American literature is bad because they hate things like Ulysses. I can't speak as much about literature because I don't come from that world sure, or yeah. I haven't had as much engagement with that world. But when I think about, you know, you have to be, it's just like we all speak English, but you also have to be taught about the English language and how we put, how we put sentences together, how we give a speech, how to, and I'm one of the least eloquent people that I know when it comes to the English language, but like being able to play with language. And that's a really important thing to do. We all speak English and we all have to learn how to do it. And I think that, that, that art has to, you have to teach it in the same way. Mm. Yeah. And if it's, if it's only ever pictures of paintings or, or summaries of, of Ulysses or recordings and not a live experience where you go and you smell and you have this, this communal experience with somebody. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just not very interesting. I'll be honest with you. I, the first time I tried to listen to Tristan and Isolde, I like stopped after 25 minutes because I was like, I cannot take this bullshit any longer. And it's not bullshit. It's just not meant to be listened to in a dorm room on, (laughs) on a Thursday. It's just not, it's meant to be experienced live. Yeah. Or, you know, uh, my first experience of Henry James as a 10th grader was let's all read beasts in the jungle. Cause it's like the shortest Henry James. So I guess we'll start there. And it's a short story about regret and teenagers know nothing about regret. So yeah. Anyway. Yeah. These things, these things matter. And also, so my, my husband, he, when he was first in Berlin and he would go to the opera he had an experience with a, a, a uh, with a, a fellow friend who was also a tuba player, and they they went to see I think Salome, which is a pretty intense show to mm-hmm. see. Um, and the tuba player asked my now husband, "So what do you think of that?" And my husband said, "I don't. I mean, I don't really know anything about it." And the tuba player said, "That actually doesn't matter. Like your experience is no less valid because you don't know the history of this piece." Mm-hmm. And teaching people, yeah, your opinion is also like, how did that make you feel? What did you think? Or what did you experience when you were taking in consuming this art? And people are also not told that in the States. I remember we went to go see an opera together last year. We did. Oh God. And I was sitting there. (laughs) I wanted to die. And I didn't know I was there. She's as like, I bet she loves this. I bet. I think I'm probably wrong and stupid and I'm going to have to pretend I'm going to have to pretend I'm going to have to think of something to say. And I was sitting there like trying not to focus on the opera because it made, made my ears bleed. But, uh, also because I was in, inter- what am I going to say? What am I going to say? I have to say something smart. And then after it was over, you just turned to me. It was like, what the fuck was any of that? And I was just so relieved that I wasn't stupid, that it actually was bad. I mean, there were lots of cheers that night. Like there were people in the audience who really enjoyed that, but I, Why? it was, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't know. I found it maybe to be just, dreadful. Maybe just because they thought that that was what it was supposed to sound like. I thought that that was maybe what it was supposed to sound like. No. And I was so relieved that you were like, that's not how that's supposed that's, to go. No. Yeah. I mean, it does prove that, that, that 
poor performance happens in Berlin too. It is not yeah. a utopian experience here. No, no. You know, but I had this, I had this experience in a different theater with a friend. We went to a show and I found myself just absolutely falling in love with everything that was happening on stage, but not sure if it was appropriate for me to enjoy it. And so when, when the lights came up at intermission, I was really nervous to say to her, this might be the best thing I've ever seen. And she turns to me and her first words were like, um, so I don't, I I don't know if this is the best thing I've ever seen. And I was like, it is because it's the best thing I've ever seen. And I had that experience you know, sadly, when we went to that show together, there was no intermission. And I remember looking at, I don't wear a watch, but I found myself like looking at my non-existent watch thinking, isn't it about time for a, for an intermission so we can just get the hell out of here? Yeah. 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 But to also, to also know that's okay. Like you can go to the opera and think this is bullshit and then decide if you want to leave. Yeah. And the truth is, is that when you pay 20 euros for a ticket, it doesn't matter. I mean, 20 euros is 20 euros. Yeah. But when you pay 190 euros for a ticket, oh, like yeah. you're going to get your money's worth. Yeah. You're going to think that's brilliant because otherwise you just wasted. You got duped. Yeah. You paid for parking. You got Probably like a dinner. $9 glass of terrible champagne in the you lobby. You could have had beer. Yeah. But you didn't. No. Uh, no, I think that these things matter. And, and to have just access, I think is what we're sort of like coming down to is just access matters and um, having it be in a sort of siloed specifically for people who can afford it is, is not great. Like the people who actually have money in our culture are, should not be carrying the torch for that culture. They're bad people. If you make art, just this commodity for the rich, or if you make participation in art, a commodity for the rich, it is such a huge detriment to society at large. I, you know, I did not come from a musical family. I did not come from uh, from a family of privilege, but to be able to have partaken in some really incredible artistic experiences is partly, I think, a testament to how stupid I am or, like, or ignorant of the way that the world is supposed to work. Mm-hmm. It's a little testament, sadly, and I'm sorry to say this, to like the idea of the American dream. Mm-hmm. But I'm also still quite saddled with student debt. And it's difficult now as I age to think about, oh, that money every month. I do love the education that I, that I, that I received, Mm -hmm. but God, oh, I wish it didn't, I wish it wasn't still following me all these years later. Okay. So to close out the conversation as a teenager, and this doesn't have to specifically refer to music, but what was like the first work of art or literature or film or whatever that you remember just like as being a singular experience of it moving you? I have to think about this for just a minute. As a teenager, um, I think it was the VHS <laughs> um, recording of West Side Story, the movie. <gasps> yeah, sure. Yeah. 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 Good choice. Yeah. Excellent choice. Oh, the outfits in that movie are just ab- sublime. Yeah. Like gangs fight dancing with each other. Fight dancing. Yeah. Beautiful. I like that yeah. answer a lot. Yeah. What about for you? I honestly think David Wannerowitz, um, uh getting uh, close to the knives when I was 16. And my entry into David Wannerowitz, I'm going to admit this for the first time, this is wildly embarrassing, uh, came through U2. Oh, through the, the band U2? The band U2. 
Uh, Bono apparently befriended uh, Wanneroo before his death, and they used his art on um, the cover of a single. And that's that's how I got into David Wanneroitz. Anything that works, man. Fuck. I guess. I like you two. I'll sing along to their songs. <laughs> I won't pay to go to one of their shows because no. it's too expensive. But yeah, you know. it's like speaking of two hundred dollars. Yeah. 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 Might as well rather go to the opera. Although I did spend an obscene amount of money on a share ticket because she's coming to yes. Berlin. No, that's like church. It is. Yeah. I'm that's, so excited. No, that's a temple. You make your offerings at the temple when chair comes. Yeah. No, fuck that. Yeah. I can't wait. Yeah. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram, at Forever Dog Team, and liking our page on Facebook.